And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Gladwell. Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all postseason long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic, and I'm joined once again by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and now the voice of postseason baseball on ESPN and ESPN Radio, Doug Glanville. So, Doug, had a pretty leisurely last few days, right? 15 <laughs> right. inning games, flights all over America. How you doing, man? Uh, I'm not sure what continent I'm on right now, but, um, you know, I mean, it's like midday, the shades are drawn. Uh, I was on a plane, I know that, this morning, uh, like a 4 o'clock, 3.45 wake-up call. But this is what yeah. we do, man. This is what yes. we do. But, uh, yeah, what Cleveland... Uh, <laughs> Philly, I don't know where I am, somewhere. in. The, I think I'm in California at this point. Yeah, you know, like time for me once again to remind everybody what people like me and Doug call October, <laughs> National Sleep Deprivation Month. This year, extending well into November. Great. <laughs> so, Doug, we have another amazing show today. Um, it feels like we've been visiting with the voices of postseason baseball this week, uh, it'll be the great Tom Hamilton, the legend from Cleveland, joining us. And uh, that's particularly appropriate for this show because you and Tom just got to spend some quality time together at the ballpark in Cleveland over the weekend. In fact, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of quality time. And so uh, you two guys had the thrill trying to put an incredible 15-inning, one nothing game, a series clincher, into words. And I, like first, I want you to know, Doug, I was getting texts from my friends in baseball all day telling me how great a job you did, how much uh, spectacular insight that you provided. And uh, I, I, you need to know that people did notice. But what I really want you to do is tell people, what it's like to call a game like that? Yeah, no, it's it's well appreciated. I um, you know, got some text during the game, and you know, I mean, I've done a lot of games, but I haven't had a lot of postseason experience. And uh, 
I think it helped a lot to have John Shambi, someone I've known forever, just hanging out. It would be like you and I doing a game. You know, we just talk like <laughs> friends. And, and we spent, you know, all the prep you do, you spend some time. We had the day that they were just working out. I think that broke a lot of ice. It was also really easy to deal with someone like Terry Francona and uh, Kevin Cash, who have this long-standing history together. So that made things, you know, really easy to get started. And, you know, we started our day just kind of, getting the backstory and going into those games, we knew that, you know, the storyline was going to be pitching, run prevention, you know, sort of base running. We just knew that that was kind of be the key elements. They're not teams that hit tons of home runs, although they scored all the runs that way, but there was only, you know, how many runs were there? Four. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we, uh, we kind of anticipated that and built a lot of our analysis around, well, this is probably going to be about filling the strike zone up, you know, timely hitting, holding the lead, things like that. And um, and so, you know, we just were prepared for that. And, you know, first game, pitching the mastery of Shane Bieber, you know, it was beautiful. McClanahan was also equally great, just one, one pitch to the star in the lineup. And we also knew that if the Rays were going to be successful, they had to keep people off base in front of Jose Ramirez. Right? So, you know, so it was it was cool to see it kind of unfold. And, and just the fact that you had this, you know, cat and mouse game between a mentor manager and Kevin Cash as the sort of protege was also really cool. So when we got into the second game, I, you know, I had much more insight on these teams, of course, after game one. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we were talking to Tom and uh, Hamilton and we were trying to figure out, OK, let's get some more understanding about local, you know, understanding about Cleveland. And, you know, one funny thing is when you walked in our booth, there was a giant sign in front of John Chambi that said Guardians, right? <laughs> and he was like, oh, okay, I know what that is. Because, you know, it takes time. It's, they were the Indians from my childhood and everybody's trying to remember. But when you've done it all season, that's one thing. But we were, I was so afraid to say Indians because it's just my natural. <laughs> so I was like, Guardians, Guardians. So we kept chanting it to each other. And um, no, no, so that's sort of how it led into this game. So as the zeros started going up, and just like I remember doing a column with you a long time ago about when we played a long extra inning game against the Padres, and I said the zero just looked like another sun rising, right? It was just another day. It was like, it was just like here's another zero. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So I'm looking at my score sheet. I'm like, I- I'm running out of room here. Like, fortunately, the score sheet, it goes like 12 innings, and then you have like at-bat, runs, hits. So you can kind of go to 16. But I was like, I'm going to have to staple another sheet here. To the- <laughs> I did that. I so, had to do that. <laughs> I mean, I was like, this is this is a problem. So, um, but, but it was really enjoyable because, for one, the nuance of the game, to me, got elevated because you weren't just lazily sitting back like, oh, it was a three-run homer and guys can make all these mistakes and then one swing of the bat. Yeah, it was one swing of the bat because that was the only run. And in between was all these kind of little tidbits about how important it was, how you slide, how important it is that you pick the right time to go, how important it is you know what the pitcher is trying to do, uh, the call that you get from the umpire. I mean, when you're in a 0-0 game, everything is amplified. It's almost like, you know, going into a room blindfolded and you have this heightened sense of smell, heightened sense of just like the tingling on your neck because you're trying to describe how fragile that score is, you know, and, and I, I thought it was just a, it just suited us well because both John and I get into the weeds, we can get into numbers, but we also have known each other and know the personnel and the people so we could 
tell a lot of stories, and it was all relevant to the score and, and the fragility of that score. So, you know, and of course, there's a guy like me who's speed, defense, and, you know, running bases and all those little things that I had to do, laying a bunt down, you know, that became the accent point of playing a game that's so tight, especially an elimination game. So, you know, so we just kept going. And, of course, there was a couple rallies. Cleveland couldn't get anything done. Great pitching by Adam, the Rays, and everything was so big. And But, but one storyline that kept coming through was how young Cleveland was, right? They, this is a young team. And I think I could tell Francona and others were probably a little tired of it. But we wanted to understand, like, they'd never been there. Like, these, you know, teams... You have to go back to the 86 men's to get the youngest team to go to the World Series. So we were kind of like, wow, this is unusual. And, and so watching these guys, and what, what Francona said so well was, look, I know they haven't been through it before. Everything is new. But how they respond, you never know. I mean, they, might, they, they seem to be comfortable with this. So, you know, even if they didn't have that experience. So they showed, especially when these games were so tight that they can – kind of come out of it. And then when you have, you know, the home home run hit by one of those young guys, right? <laughs> you, you know, it's like, oh, right, okay, Oscar Oscar Gonzalez is the guy that can come through in this moment. Uh, I think it just sort of summed it up so well because you were waiting for Jose Ramirez, you were waiting, and then all of a sudden the guy that really sums up their team uh, brings it home. And, and I loved how Francona framed it so well. He said, look, I can talk all day about playing hard, hustling, being that guy, but if my star player doesn't do it, it doesn't matter. It won't mean anything. It only resonates because I say it, we get the results, and you have a star that actually believes in it. And when we talked to Stephen Kwan before the game, he was like, look, when Jose Ramirez hits the ground ball to short in spring training and runs it out, I got it. I understood I have no excuse. So that was what was compelling about Cleveland. And, and uh, you know, uh, the GM, I think he's the GM, Peter Bendix, who – who, oh, right. Okay. He's from Cleveland, and he's, he's a huge Tom, you know, Hamilton fan. So it was cool to see him come home and kind of be reduced to a kid, even though he had the data. But all the data that's driven by the Rays and and their sort of money ball kind of style, uh, it, it was cool to see it kind of play out in the decision making. So I don't know. I thought it was so fantastic. The fans were out of their minds. It was so electric in there. I had to actually turn up the crowd noise to remind myself to talk over it. You know, we had because because I was like, if I talk normal, it's gonna you won't hear me. So That's a great point. Uh, so that was you know getting tidbits from you know ESPN and others. So I mean, I don't know. I just had a, a great time, and uh, it was such a great form of baseball. So uh, being there was was extremely special, and uh, and of course I love Terry Francona, so that made it even more sweet. Uh, yeah, Book Shambi hold out every Terry Francona story in his arsenal everyone <laughs> they were, and they're all awesome um but before we get off of this topic i i just want people to appreciate it two minutes short of five hours of baseball and both teams forgot to score a run until the last pitch and like again the art of calling a game like that uh, it's not like you can just keep recapping the scoring. <laughs> right. You know, the game going on opposite you in the afternoon was 10 to 9. This was 1 to nothing. So how much more challenging than the average baseball game is a game like that to call? 
Yeah, but it, it, to me, that was actually better for me because <laughs> I love that stuff. Just like this is the Starkville show, right? It's the idea yeah. of the small things that, and they matter. They really matter. Like how Margot slid head first, diving with his head looking towards center field mattered. How when the Guardians were stealing bases and never looking in, when when the when the batter was swinging, you know that was you know those were mistakes that could blow up in your face. So I I thought it was good for me to have little action like that and just focusing on what leads up. It was very much built on crescendo, and and trying to anticipate what could happen. That was fun. That was like a good scenario for me. And and so you know to to talk about it was uh you know something that I felt was was a comfort zone for me and and yeah. you, know, you know John Chambi of course loves the data and I think the the big challenge if anything was like when to just kind of stop talking because there was so much ambiance there was so much sound uh, from the fans excuse me and trying to figure out like what that meant and and how I should make sure that I let them capture the moment as much as I might be trying to frame it so that balance is you know part of what we do in, in trying to figure out the art form of it. But because the the natural sound in of itself is incredible, and and uh, and you know Cleveland, you know they're looking for this, and you know they, they had the Browns, you know Browns football, we know that's a hard to go up against, you know, <laughs> so there was all that. But uh, I, yeah, I, so I found it to be something that really played well for me. If you need the guy, like there's home runs every five seconds, and you're screaming all the time, that's not that's not necessarily my strength. I'd let Shambi kind of do a lot of that, <laughs> but to capture the moment, frame it contextualize it yeah that was that was a, a lot of fun yeah my kind of game too in other ways I'll, I'll i'll tell you uh about some of the tidbits i dug up what my day was like trying to write the weird and wild column that day and that night till four in the morning we'll get to that later and strange but true uh the other funny thing and we were texting you about this friday's game Two hours and 19 minutes. <laughs> Shortest postseason game of the 21st century. <laughs> then the baseball god said, can't let him have one of those again. So 458 <laughs> on Saturday. And I had a flight to catch too, by the way. <laughs> I was so, thinking about that. But I, I, was, I found a 745 out of there. Game started at noon. I was like, man, we got this easy. And then I was like starting to sweat. Like, wait a minute. I might not get out of here. And I got through the gate and, you know, just got there. So... That was, that was remarkable in itself. I had a flight eight hours after the game started. It was, it was tight. I had a very similar adventure there from that very park one year where I kept looking at the clock going, I'm never going to make this. And I, I got there like a minute before they closed the door. So it's there's, there's all these little subtexts mm-hmm. to every day at the yard. Uh, but like to sum it up, there's never been a game quite like that in any postseason ever. So I can't wait to talk to Tom Hamilton about that game, about that team. Uh, we should also talk to him about possibly being honored in Cooperstown in the next few months, Doug. Yeah, so right. what do you say we bring him in right now? Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, so we've heard the beautiful Doug Glanville soliloquy on what it's like to describe a five-hour one-nothing game. <laughs> Let's ask a true Cleveland legend what it's like. Time to welcome in the great Tom Hamilton, voice of Cleveland baseball for the last three decades. Tom, thanks for visiting us in Starkville. Well, thank you, Jason, and uh, thank you, Doug. It's an honor to be with you, and I got to start it off first. I know a lot of people that I've talked to watched that ball game and, and said that Doug and Boog did an incredible job because, um, you know, that was five hours of tense baseball, but there wasn't a lot of action outside of <laughs> swinging and missing. Even talking to the guys at the workout in New York today, still they were talking about they couldn't see the ball. and But both so teams true. had really good pitching, but uh, kudos to Doug and and Boog for the great job that they did. Well, you too, my friend. And, and you know, when you call baseball games for a living, part of your job is to put moments into words that people then remember for a lifetime. And so Saturday in the 15th inning, one of those moments came along, Tom. And as always, you were the perfect voice for that moment. So before we talk about it, I want everyone to hear how Tom <laughs> Hamilton called Oscar Gonzalez's game-winning, series-clinching walk-off homer in the 15th. Corey Kluber, this is his third inning of work. The right-handers pitch. A swing and a high fly! Deep left center field! It is gone! Oscar Gonzalez sends the Guardians to the division series. A mob scene at home plate. A towering solo homer to left center to end this marathon incredible playoff game. Wow. What a moment. And what a call. Do they they wait until you're finished? Uh, saying the ball's out before they shoot the fireworks off? Is that how it works? <laughs> he had time say, perfect. If they relied on me, there'd be some balls caught by the shortstop and the fireworks going off. So. <laughs> Not many. Well, so what do you remember about that trip around the bases and how you described it? You know, it's just, um, you know, it's one of those moments you hope you get to see, whether you're a fan or a broadcaster and, um, wish I had been good enough to play at that level and uh, or to be a teammate. I think the best part of it is is looking around and seeing the crowd go crazy, seeing grown men leaping out of a dugout like they're little leaguers. Um, I, I just, you know, we've been really blessed to have some really good teams and some incredible moments in that ballpark. Um, maybe the best part of the day 
was right next to our booth was Rajay Davis, who is one of the best people I've ever met in the game. And in my mind still has the greatest moment in the history of that park. That park opened up in 1994. And, and you think about it, Jason and Doug, um, this club now, or the Indians now guardians, they've been in the playoffs 13 times since 1995, which is a pretty incredible run for um, a revenue challenged small market franchise. And Rajay Davis had that moment in the eighth inning that we all remember against the Cubs in game seven. Two outs, Geyer at second. Six to four, Cubs leading the Indians. Game seven of what has been a classic World Series between two teams that have longed for that championship more years than any other two franchises in baseball. 68 years for the Indians. 108 years for the Cubs. Now the pitch. Swung in, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration out of the Indians' third base dugout. field line clearing the 19 foot wall we are tied at six and you know oscar gonzalez it's not at that level but how many times do we see a walk-off home run and any kind of a playoff series that's right you know? in and extra innings and you kind of felt like i don't know how doug felt i was hoping whoever won that game won it that way and not with a mistake because the game to me was too good to have somebody have to hear about it all winter long. You booted a ground ball and that ended that game. So I'm glad it ended with a positive moment. You, you know what three words people are going to be saying to you forever? Hello, New York. <laughs> I saw so many people on Twitter repeating that <laughs> phrase. And so is, is any of that pre-planned, Tom? No. Does, it, does it just come out because you have such a great feel for the right words and the right moments? You know what? I, I appreciate you saying that. But, Jason, you just hope you don't screw it up. That That's I, – I can remember, and I'm not trying to name drop here, but Joe Buck and I were in the minor leagues at the same time. Now, that was 1989 – uh, the the difference was I was in my 30s doing AAA, and he was a freshman out of Indiana University doing AAA. <laughs> so you were like, I said to my wife, you picked the wrong pony. <laughs> this, this guy's going to get to the major leagues real soon. And, uh, and so I've known Joe since 1989. Not that we're close friends or anything like that, but we're, I would hope he would consider me a, a friend or at least an acquaintance. But we would talk all the time in 2016 during that World Series and I'm a big Packers fan being from Wisconsin. And so he was always doing Green Bay Packer games. And I'm asking him, what in the heck's going on with McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers? <laughs> He's filling me in on that. And, and then he, he said something very profound. He goes, you're having a hard time sleeping at night, aren't you? And I go, well, yeah, how would you know that? Because he goes, you are thinking about what are you going to say if the Indians win the World Series. And he goes, your counterpart, Pat Hughes, has that same thing probably resting on his shoulders. And he goes, I am too. 
because somebody was going to end a drought of historical uh, <laughs> proportions as far as winning a World Series. And you, you just hope you don't mess it up because you don't get a mulligan. And um, so if you mess it up, you're the one, you know, um, you're the one that they'll remember like Bill Buckner, even though it wasn't Bill Buckner's fault, Boston lost that World Series. That's all they ever talk about is Bill Buckner. And you'd hate to be the guy that everyone replays that call and you butchered it. And so mm. I think you just, you know, you say a prayer and say, boy, please help me not mess up. <laughs> yeah, you know, Doug, Doug and I have talked a few times about um, the meaning of being the soundtrack of those moments. And, uh, you know, as that game went on the other day, there was going to be a moment. <laughs> you got to call four hours and 58 minutes worth of baseball. And there were no runs until that home run. Uh, Doug and I were just kicking around what that was like from his perspective. Uh, I would love to hear the two of you talk about that experience. So why don't you talk about the the biggest challenge of calling a game like that? Then how about you and Doug go back and forth a little on that? And I'll just sit back and enjoy it. (laughs) Thanks, Jason. I I mean, for me, it, it wasn't difficult. Um, one, there wasn't really anything crazy happening. I mean, for the most part, it was swing and a miss, swing and a miss, you know? Um, so it wasn't a hard game from a play by play standpoint to call. Um, but, and it wasn't also, again, it wasn't hard for me being, you know, employed by the ball club to be enthusiastic. I mean, if you can't enjoy that, you, you know, you're seeing, it may not be historical. I don't want to be over dramatic here, but that that that's a pretty special ball game that I think all of us saw. And I, the way I look at it, how blessed and how fortunate am I here to to be able to witness this? And so, you know, you just I think Jason, the biggest thing, and I'm sure Doug will. It, I'm sure it was like this for him as a player. If you start thinking about the moment, that's when you're going to mess it up. And I don't get caught up in the, you know, I, I had a great mentor in Herb score. My first year is 1990 and Herb is like, we are horse blank. And he goes, but that's not going to change how we're going to call a game this year. We're not going to win many games and you got to approach every ball game. Like it's the biggest event of that day, because there are people at home that look forward to this broadcast because Maybe they're shut-ins, maybe they're blind, maybe they're challenged in other ways, that the ball game that night is the most important thing of their life, and it doesn't matter that we're 33 games under 500. Um, you don't broadcast the game that way. So I've, I have taken Herb's advice uh, with me for 33 years, and so you try to approach every game the same way. But as that game went on, you you, you couldn't help but be excited. I don't know how Doug felt, but I – um, Doug, I don't know about you. I, it's the old adage, some two and a half hour games are too long and some five hour games weren't long enough. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, uh, incredible. And I, I think the, you know, game one, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, like game one versus game two, just the difference in the, the fan expectation. I mean, did you notice the shift going after you finished the first game? And then the enthusiasm, I know the, the Browns were playing and there was a lot yeah. going on, but I found that crowd just have a different tone to it, even in game two. I, I think you're right, Doug, because I don't think the fan base has really bought into this club all year. 
you know, and I, and, and it's not, I, and I'm not trying to lay blame to the fans or anything like that, but the beauty of Chris Antonetti, Mike Chernoff and Tito's, they don't sugarcoat anything. I mean, they didn't promise people in spring training that this is a playoff team. No, they, they, they said, look, we're, this is what we are. We're young. We got to get answers to questions on young players that, you know, we're not going to go out and add any names. We, we need to see what these kids can do going forward. As Tito always says, you got to get answers to questions. The worst thing you can do is go through a year and not get answers to questions you had in April. And so I think fans looked at that as, and went, Oh, great. You know, they're not going to be very good. And so I think we have seen all year long, you know, there's always that, that core base that's really into it, but you haven't had those other people jumping onto the bandwagon. And to your point, I felt like Saturday's crowd, that win on Friday got that crowd juiced up. One, it was Saturday. So they, they had all weekend to get over whatever they were going to have to get over after that game. It's probably a good thing beer sales ended after the seventh inning. Um, and I think finally, for the first time, I felt like fans were like, hey, wait a minute. These kids are pretty good. This is this is a fun group. And I, I thought our fans had to be exhausted the amount of times they got up and down, up and down. And I know you guys had some great video shots of it. That, that was a physically exhausting game for fans. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Tom, I guess, you know, looking at that team and having the success and trying to describe it, I mean... How did you sort of connect the dots to that, like you said, that season going in with like tempered expectations and then seeing Francona kind of work his magic with a lot of young guys? I mean, did sort of game two make sense? Did it did it fit in, in the narrative yes. of, the, of the season? I mean, it, it has, Doug. I mean, because, um, you know, in the beginning of the year, first half of the year, you're trying to trying to get your audience to even know who these guys are. You had a lot of stories you could tell people about these kids because nobody knew anything about them. You know, no, nobody knew anything about Stephen Kwan unless they were a great Oregon State baseball fan. And, uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on with all the young kids. And so I think there's been an identity crisis in Cleveland a little bit with, you know, some of the people that are no longer there. That's why I thought the signing of Jose Ramirez was so impactful going forward that, that that's your linchpin and you've got him for seven years. But then once September got going and we went from a tie for first place to going 26 and six now since September 5th, if you include the two playoff games, you just got a sense the way this group of kids feels like, why not us? It, it's, it's so good. Maybe that they're so naive in some regards, Doug, as you know, that, I think because they've never gone through it before, they're like, well, why can't we win? You know, um, they have felt that way for a long time. And I think you saw it in that game. I mean, they didn't wilt. And Tampa Bay has been in the playoffs four years in a row. They're the ones with the experience. And, you know, I thought the play Jose Ramirez made and Josh Naylor made, you know, I don't know, Doug, what you thought. If Can you make that play one time out of 100 maybe? No. I mean, I, I just – that was jaw dropping. I mean, and Naylor and his story with his brother yep. on the team. I mean, he just, you could tell he was just in a different kind of place because of that. And, and we talked to Naylor before, you know, in the press conference. And he said, like, I try to stay out of the way. He's trying to give his brother the yep. sort of stage. 
Um, I thought it was amazing. You know, of course, my brother taught me the game. He's uh, older than I am, so I'm kind of the bow uh, to Josh kind of situation. <laughs> um, and so, but even in that play, like, was there any play that stood out that you were like, this is a tough one to call? Because, you know, there was like instant replay. And right. I mean, how, how did you handle that play? I didn't, I didn't hear it. So I'm obviously working at the same time, but, you know. A swing and a bouncer toward third backhand by Ramirez. Foul ground throw to first. Scoop by Naylor. He got him. Tampa Bay will challenge the call. A backhanded grab by Ramirez going to the line. Falling into foul ground. A one-hop throw to first. A great scoop by Naylor. Did he keep the foot on the bag or did it come off? And Tampa Bay will challenge the call at first. Oh, what a play on both ends if it stands. Hopefully I handled it. I haven't listened back to it. I I, I don't like listening back. I just, because uh, you can always find something you went, oh, God. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, it was such a bang-bang play. And we hadn't had many crazy plays, so I think I was fortunate that way. There wasn't anything that came out of left field. You know, I... I think our biggest concern was, did he pull the foot or not, you know, and that kind of thing. But uh, we've seen Jose do that again and again and again. I don't think people talk enough about Jose's intellect and his defense. And um, I I hope for the sake of Jose, we're in this long-term because I think the country needs to see how special this kid is. He's played in the, the shadow of Francisco Lindor. And that's not Frankie's fault. You know, Frankie's a magnetic personality and an unbelievably talented player. And I really enjoyed the entire time Francisco was with us. But Jose Ramirez is every bit the same player. And I think the country is about to find out just how special he is. Let's face it. You play New York, the whole country's watching. Guys, we went from noon starts to 7.30 at night. So. <laughs> You're big time, Tom. You are. You know, I, uh, I I spent a lot of time around the Blue Jays this spring, and felt like every day people were talking about trading for <laughs> Jose Ramirez. And when we tell the story of this season, if he doesn't decide he wants to stay and sign the extension, and instead they trade him, are we talking about this team before they start playing the Yankees in Yankee Stadium in October? Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't be talking to me right now, Jason. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I'm, no. I, I never mind talking to you. But <laughs> but, probably not. <laughs> no, I mean uh, Doug would not have been in Cleveland uh, this past weekend. No, I. When people ask the turning point, you know, and you guys know in a baseball season you can't pick one game as a turning point. Um, but I think you can pick April 5th as the turning point. That was the Tuesday that we were leaving Goodyear, Arizona to fly to Kansas city to open up the season Thursday, April 7th on that Sunday. Um, it looked like negotiations were over. Um, Jose's camp wanted to sick, you know, what people forget too. Jose was under contract for this year and next year. And then he would have been a free agent. So he had two years left. And so, you know, if you don't get a deal done, you've got him for two years. However, um, they would have traded him. You know, they they just felt they saw it with Francisco Lindor. They kept Frankie for one more year. Well, now that trade's been a great trade. I'm at Rosario and Andres Jimenez. 
um, you know, we wouldn't be talking here today either without those two guys, but you're going to get more if a guy's with a club for two years. So Hosey told his agent on Sunday, no, we're, we're not ending negotiations. I'm not leaving Cleveland. We need to get a deal done. I don't want to leave. They were at six years. The Guardians had a four-year offer out there. And um, when Paul Dolan, our owner, heard that Hosey definitely wanted to get something done, they talked. And um, because, again, a lot of times an owner hears a player doesn't want to leave and, you know, it's done maybe for PR purposes than anything else. And when they talked and he saw the sincerity or heard the sincerity from Jose Ramirez, they worked out a five-year extension. Jose then wanted a no trade. And Mr. Dolan said, you got it. And honestly, we sat on the runway in Phoenix knowing that he was either coming down the aisle way and he was coming with us to Kansas City and something had worked out or he was on another plane headed to another team. He would have been traded. And so that's how close it came. Tuesday, April 5th, to me, everything changed for Cleveland baseball. And again, um, you know, we're, we're, we're the lucky ones. We get to watch him for six more years after this. And, you know, I, it, it, it's fun to see. And I never begrudge a player for getting every nickel they can get because they've earned that right. But it's pretty special when both sides say, Let, let's, let's make this a win-win situation. Yeah. You know, the other name that we've dropped a few times here already, all of us, Terry Francona, oh. um, my, you know, my former neighbor here outside Philadelphia. I, I don't, I don't make this statement lightly. Best manager in the sport. What's the imprint that Terry Francona has made on this particular team? Well, I think Doug could even answer that better having played for Tito. I mean, um, everything starts and, and I don't want to begrudge. I, I think our front office is as good as it gets. And I think that's been proven. I mean, but we've been relevant since 2013, Tito's first year here. And, you know, there, there didn't look to be any light at the end of the tunnel when Tito got hired. In fact, all of us were like, he's coming here. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like the 90s teams or some of the other teams that we have had. We had just gone through three really bad years and um, he changed the culture in that clubhouse. Now, again, I think our front office is second to none, but as Doug knows better than, than you and I, Jason, a culture is created by a manager and his coaching staff with players buying in. You can talk culture, but if the players don't believe it, or if they think you're a fraud, um, they just wait till you leave the room and go, whatever. And that's not the case in Cleveland. And um, I just love the fact that Tito never says, well, we can't do this. He's never talks about what a guy can't do. He always talks about what a player can do, what we as a coaching staff can do. When we had those injuries in 2016 and basically lost three starters for the World Series once Bauer decided to play with his drone, and you're down to Josh Tomlin and Corey Kluber, Tito said, yeah, it's going to be a lot tougher, but doesn't mean we can't find a way. And there are not enough people in this world or in our society who don't say we can't find a way. 
yeah, we can. Let's find a way. And I just think I, I, if you can't play for Tino, you can't play for anybody. And the respect, I'll tell you a quick story here. I don't want to go on and on. So we obviously win the pennant. The next year in 2017, people are getting, um, they want to get a photo with the American League championship trophy. Tito had a mandate to our front office. He wanted every person that works for the ball club to get a photo with him and that trophy that wanted. He took three days to make sure everybody that wanted a photo. It didn't matter if you were a custodian, if you were part of the maintenance crew, part of the cleanup crew. Tito doesn't think he's better than anybody. And I thought that pointed it out better than anything that I've ever seen in my life. It was like, these people were like, wait a minute, the manager said, I can get a photo with him? That, that says it all. Because a lot of people can be good to people that they think can help them. Tito's just good to people. Yeah, I mean, Tom, and I mean, I well, fascinating in the pre-interviews, you're talking about the practice day on Thursday. The word that just kept coming up was consistency. Consistency, yeah. consistency. And it's not just of, of his personality, but because he consistently reinforces the faith, the belief, you know, in you as a player, as a team. He just never wavers on that. And, and you heard from Kevin Cash or even on the Rays side, and they were saying the same thing. Yeah. And, and so, I, you know, I have so many examples of him laying on the sword for players. I mean, he would just – and he said, look, I'd rather – in the quote I remember says, I'd rather – everyone think that I didn't know what I was doing than to throw a player under the bus. I'd rather just take the heat. Yep. And, and that's what he did. And, and look, and, and the one time I had, you know, any, even if you want to talk about beef with Terry, was we, um, my, my dad got sick. He had a stroke the last game of the spring training, and we were in Seattle. And my mom was like, look, don't come home yet. Play the first week of the season on your off day because he, he's stable. Come visit us in New Jersey from Philly. So I was like, okay, you know, I'll you know, listen to mom. And I was so distracted, I forgot how many outs there were in a game against the Diamondbacks. Steve Finley was on second. I caught the, what I thought was the third out. No idea. I started running off the field. And Finley tagged from second and scored. It ended up being the winning run. Devastated. Really upset. Talking to John Vukovic. And Vuk said, look, let me talk to Terry and Ed Wade, the GM, and we'll handle it. And Terry, b- before I could even – he didn't want the press to even talk to me, so he – he just said, look, he's going through something with his dad. This is what's happening, and that's it. So he, he laid in front, and they were you know, trying to figure it out. And I appreciated that on the level of protection, although I didn't really want people to know the details because I barely knew the details. Yeah. So we talked about it. But you know, he's always willing to kind of lay in front. And, uh, and I think a lot of the players say the same thing, just about you know, that they, especially when you're dealing with a young team, Yes. That's what made him so good because you can make your mistakes, you can have your issues, and he'll be there for you. Uh, and and so that you know Terry's just always been that way. So it doesn't shock me at all that he's so good with this group. Well, I think Doug and Jason, how many managers can do just what Doug said? Win with a ball club that has seventeen kids making their major league debut, <laughs> or win with the pressures of Boston at a high payroll. Look, I saw it in Cleveland in the 90s. I mean, we literally had one of the bigger payrolls back in that day because of the players you had. With Pete, and I always thought Grover didn't get enough credit for managing the egos in that clubhouse and letting those egos thrive in the clubhouse and, and play the game 
and not, you know, and I, I just think it's hard to be able to do both. A lot of managers can do one or the other, but you give Tito a ball club, he'll figure out a way. All right, one more thing, because he was here and visited us a few weeks ago, and he he dropped some breadcrumbs that made me think he's not doing this forever. But I don't know what that means. You you see him every day. How much longer do you think that he will manage? That's a great question, Jason. And I I sure I'm not speaking for Tito. Look, he's in a way better spot right now than he has been physically for the last two, three years. But he still has some medical procedures that are going to have to be done at the conclusion of this year. Look, Tito is never um, going to get an endorsement package for the healthiest way to live. Um, So, I mean, he's like when you had your little kids and you're like, you got to stop eating that candy or those (laughs) potato chips. But I mean... That's Tito. Um, so I, I really feel like as long as he's healthy, that or and, and and again by that I mean not having to go through what he went through last year with the multiple surgeries and all of that. Um, I think it will be big for him this winter to be able to go back, you know, after he has some other things taken care of, to really be able to get rested up and and ready for a year instead of just always recovering, recovering, recovering. We talk about players. You know, like Josh Naylor. All Josh Naylor did last year was recover and rehab. This winter, he can actually prepare for a baseball season. And so I think as long as Tito's health doesn't take a turn for the worse, I think he's back here for a while. Um, but again, you know, I, Tito's also very realistic, as as you mentioned. He'll he, He's not going to do this forever. And, uh, but when the season's going on, he'll be the first guy to tell you, I have no life. I have no perception of life because he is all in. The only way he can do this is be all in. He's at the ballpark at, at the latest noon every day for a night game. And so if, if he couldn't do that, that's when he would step away. Yeah. Hey, we've got to talk about this series a little bit uh, and how the Guardians match up with the Yankees. Feels like they're two pretty similar teams. Uh, Guardians payroll sixty nine million. Yankees pay their outfield sixty nine million. <laughs> how do you look at this series? Did Aaron Judge at home or the Guardians have to look that up? Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean, uh, you know what? I it, it, you couldn't, like you said, you couldn't pick more polar opposites, could you? Uh, than these two ball clubs, not only how they score runs, but how the clubs are assembled. Um, you know, it was interesting being at the workout. I mean, the big story here is no Aroldis Chapman, but I think it was pretty obvious that Chapman wasn't making their postseason roster because they announced he wasn't on the roster before they announced who is on the roster. <laughs> That's so, a good point. Um, you know, I'll, I'll let that one go. But, uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, I, 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 I think all the pressure's on New York. And let's face it, guys, the best chance an underdog has is in a short series. The best chance we have to beat a team like New York is in five games, not seven. And you know what? I think it was critically important that we won in two, not three, because that, that was an exhausting series. And now you've got Cal Quantrill going game one, uh, nothing against Aaron Savali, but you know, Cal Quantrill's your number three starter. 
and competitive as all get out. And he'll be able to match up, you know, with Garrett Cole. Now they're different pitchers, and we know all of that. Um, New York saw us in April when we weren't very good, and then they saw us right before the All-Star break when we were forced to play another day-night doubleheader with them with a minor leaguer coming up to start. So we're a much better ball club than the last time we saw New York. Um, I, I'm just curious, and I'd like to know what you guys think. You know, and maybe none of us knows, but yeah. – is the layoff going to hurt a team? Is, is somebody like New York going to be hurt by a club coming in on a roll here? And let's face it, can you imagine if if Cleveland wins game one, what it'll be like here in New York City with an off day? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and the fact that they, they'll they get a chance to come back to Cleveland, you know, like yeah. that, that's special, you know, yeah. to be able to do that. And I mean, look, the the Cleveland's fundamentals, right? They catch the ball, they go first to third, they work the pl- platoon advantage to the one of the best at doing that. I mean, they struggle if they don't have it. Uh, I, you know, and if you could force the Yankees into some mistakes, you know, and they're a good defensive team. The Yankees are incredible, but they can make mistakes. And I mean, that's why it's exciting because they they put so much pressure going first to third. You know, Quan and those guys, and they catch the ball. You know, so I, I think that you know that's what they have to do. And if they can keep the ball in the ballpark, which is hard, yeah. I, I know it's it's like that's what I'm saying. I don't count Terry for all the, the tactics he's gonna put out there. Uh, you you know they're gonna believe they can win to their core. You know, guys, in talking even like with Demarlo Hale, our bench coach today, and and Chris Valake, our hitting coach, they they said, look, what the Tampa series did was totally prepare you for any pitching staff you're going to face because everybody coming out of that bullpen is throwing. If they're throwing 95, it's a changeup. It seems like they're, and they have so many different looking arms coming at you. Nobody is throwing the same. And, and, you know, what did we see Doug eight or nine guys uh, the other day? And Chris Valeka said, we saw everything you could see in the shadows, which really impacted both ball clubs with the swings and misses. But he said, I, I don't know how you could have been better prepared to move on and face whomever, because he said, take nothing away from any of the other ball clubs. He said, we're not going to face that many great arms out of a bullpen the rest of the year. We, we, and survive that. And there's a, there's just a little fire under this ball club right now that um, a lot of people are like, I, what are they doing here? That kind of thing. Things got a little chippy here in April. If you remember Miles Straw with Spider-Man going up into the stands there, climbing the wall. And and uh, Emmanuel Classe had his only bad outing, really, against uh, New York last April. Um, these guys, they're not coming in here with their wide-eyed look and like they're in over their head. Now, again, sounds good today. We'll see tomorrow night starting at, at 7.30. But I I think they've got a real shot at this. I really do. And I'm not a predictor. Let's face it. If Garrett Cole pitched us like he did against Cleveland when he was with Houston in 2018, well, we could have the 95 Indians and it wouldn't matter. Well, here is my biggest worry. Uh, and that is there's a slight power differential. <laughs> you know, and just to give you an example, you mentioned Garrett Cole. He's, he's awesome. His one Achilles heel this season has been the home run, but the Guardians are not a team that hits home runs. They're not as likely 
to exploit that dent in his armor, you mm-hmm. know? And the last two postseasons, Tom, t- the team that hits more home runs in the game is 30-4 and four in Whoa. these games. Okay, so what about the Guardians makes us think that that's nothing to worry about? Good question, Jason. I mean, look at the Tampa series. The only way we scored was on a two-run homer by Jose Ramirez and a solo homer by Oscar Gonzalez, you know? And so that that is the question. Now, um, I yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see if, if we can get back to what we've been, and that is you work the count, foul off a lot of two-strike pitches. You know, we led baseball with infield hits, sack flies, all of that. But it's awfully hard to string together four or five hits in an inning against the likes of Garrett Cole. And so I really think some of your power guys have to get big, big home runs in this series. I think, I think more importantly for us, your stars have to be stars. You know, Jose Ramirez, Shane Bieber, and Emmanuel Classe, they were stars in game one. In game two, so is Tristan McKenzie. I, I don't, I don't think the country knows how good this kid is yet either. And, um, and in our bullpen, I don't think it's enough recognition for how good it's been, especially since the all-star break. I mean, so I like our bullpen better right now than the Yankees. I think they're a little nicked up. I think they've got a little, it's a little unsettled out there right now. Um, but is that wishful thinking again? You know, you know, if, if Aaron judge goes off, and we're, we're talking a different story. Aaron Judge could single-handedly win a postseason series by himself. I mean, how long has he carried this club this year? Yeah, and I, if, and, well, I was looking, too, that, you know, you're also going to Yankee Stadium, mm-hmm. and that turns an average power hitter into an above-average power hitter. Right. So, you know, the, unquote, unlikely home run is more likely at Yankee Stadium. It might... And I, I think the bullpen, one of the strong points I learned about their bullpen is, you know, these guys, sinker, slider, you know, guys that actually can keep the ball out in, in the ballpark. Right. Uh, you know, they keep the ball on the ground. I mean, that's, that's key because, as Jason said, home run is, is king in the postseason. Uh, but, I mean, and that's why I said, like, that unlikely moment, hey, everybody's got a big league uniform arm, so why yep. not you? You know, why not you? Well, and again, I think we saw it in the Mets Padres series. We we played San Diego guys late in August in San Diego. And they just, they looked like a team that I don't think they're making the playoffs. They'd made that trade for Juan Soto. He had done nothing after the trade. We were there the day Fernando Tatis does his mea culpa and his press conference. Um, we swept them in a two-game series. I thought they looked lethargic. Um, I, I just – and then you watch them against the Mets, it's like Trent Grisham, you know, turns into a superstar. And, and it's like that that's the beauty of October. I mean, all of a sudden, Josh Bell's getting big hits. You know, Soto got the big hit last night. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I just – the one thing is I don't think the stage will be too big for us. I think if we get beat, it'll be because of what you guys are mentioning, that the home run ball. I mean, you could, that's the problem. You could pitch eight great innings and give up a couple of two-run home runs, and, and it does you in. 
Well, one thing I noticed from the Browns game on Sunday is <laughs> the midges are ready for the Yankees. So <laughs> there, there is that factor. Uh, Tom, we need to talk a little bit about you and your story. Uh, first off, just announced the other day you're on the ballot for the next Ford Frick Award, which is the broadcaster's wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame. I can't think of anyone, honestly, who's more deserving. So congratulations on that. How big an honor is it just to be on that ballot? Well, that's it exactly, Jason. I mean, um, that's kind of like, you know, almost like when I asked my wife and and she said yes. And I was like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) marry me (laughs) holy smokes so um you know it's surreal you see the names on there and and you know i'm humbled to even be remotely considered because i think all of those guys are incredible broadcasters that are on that um you know i grew up on a dairy farm in wisconsin i'm not bailing hay anymore so I haven't worked a day in my life, as far as I'm concerned, the last 33 years. That was work. So, and I'm very grateful for that upbringing and, and what it taught you as far as the work ethic and all of that and, and how you appreciate how lucky you are to be here and just to have this job. I mean, I, I won the lottery the day I got hired. And, um, you know, when you're a player, and I can relate to players only from the standpoint, when you're in the minor leagues and, I'm in Columbus with Jay Buhner and Hal Morris and Kevin Moss and Randy Velarde. And we had some really good teams in New York and you'd see those guys go up to New York and see how excited they were to get that call up. And you just sat there going, you know, gosh, what would that be like? So the day you got the phone call saying you got hired was outside of having children and your wife was greatest day ever. So Nothing will ever top that. This is a, a great honor, and you're just humbled to be on it. But, again, you know how fortunate you are to, to be here to just have this job. Yeah, and you just mentioned you grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. So how did you get here? How did you even know you wanted to become a guy who broadcast baseball? Well, we had games? horses, you know, so <laughs> saddled up. And, you got to uh, have the horses. And the, the horses talk. The horses talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, not ours. <laughs> Mr. Ed. <laughs> uh, they had only one side of them that talked, and that was the side that made you want to get off the farm. <laughs> I, you know what? I think it actually was. It was so for me, and I'm dating myself, but I'm old. Um, those were the last years of the Milwaukee Braves. So, you know, we had a great announcer doing the Braves, Earl Gillespie. Um, I have one piece of memorabilia, a signed picture with Hank Aaron, because that was my guy. You know. Um, I was the oldest of five children because we were dairy farmers back in those days. You milk twice a day. Now they milk three times a day. We got to go to one doubleheader every year at County Stadium. And I was the oldest, so I got to pick where we sat. We always sat in the right field bleachers so we could be closer to Hank Aaron. So to later in life, meet him. And we, he and I did a, a benefit together was, again, one of those, I, I can't believe it. And then you find out after being with him for two hours that he was even as good a man as he was a baseball player, which really um, in this day and age, you're always stunned how great some of these people can be. So that was it for me. I think listening on a transistor radio, literally, you know, on those nights on the porch where, you know, the Milwaukee Braves are playing wherever it just seems so magical and you just couldn't imagine what it would be like 
to even be in a city that had a stop sign, um, much <laughs> less uh, do that. And so that that's kind of where the dream started. I wished I would have been a lot better athletically and you could have been a player, but boy, next to playing, this always seemed like the next best thing. And then I've been very blessed to, to get to this point. And we live in an age of TV, uh, but you've been the voice of baseball on the radio. W- why does that work for you? You know, I did 25 years of television in college basketball for the Big Ten and um, loved it. And uh, but if you're a play-by-play guy, and and I don't and I don't ever want this to come across as denigrating anyone, um, but radio play-by-play is you're you're truly doing play-by-play. And television, the camera is is for the most part doing the play-by-play, and um, you're the one on radio that gets to you know create the visual for the person that's listening there. And so while I like doing both, I've always preferred radio. Um, you wonder where it's going in this day and age, you know, with kids and their attention span and watching everything on their phone. But, uh, you know, that, that was for me, the truest form of play by play. And it's what I always wanted to do. I enjoyed all my years in television, doing college basketball and, and whatnot. But for me, the, the true essence of play-by-play was was the radio. Well, Tom, I'm I'm wondering through all those years you mentioned, you know, having a mentorship, uh, and, and was under Herb Score you mentioned. Yes. Well, how about passing it down? Are there any broadcasters that have come to you and talked about how you've influenced their career? You know, you, you get a lot of young people that'll send you their tapes. Or you'll talk to them and whatnot. And whether or not I've been any help, I don't know, Doug. I mean, the biggest thing we always, I always tell them, as I told my four children, my wife and I, with our four kids, is like, if you've got a dream, you, you got to follow it. You got to be all in. You got to pursue it. And don't let anyone tell you what you can't do. Everybody wants to tell you what you can't do. And the, the thing I always tell young broadcasters is, you control the dream. Now you don't control the outcome and some of us get lucky. Some of us don't, but you're the one that says I'm going to keep pursuing it or not. And I always felt there were a lot of people so much more talented than myself. that got frustrated and quit along the way. And I just think the people that stick with it and, you know, try to, to get through the bumps. I mean, I bartended a lot of nights to try to make ends meet and, and do whatever you had to, to keep the dream alive. And I just think young people need to do that. And that's the biggest thing you tell a broadcaster that and be yourself, you know, um, all those kids that grew up in LA trying to imitate Vince Scully. And it's like, folks, <laughs> you know, the good Lord only made one Vince Scully <laughs> and there'll never be anyone as good as Vin again. And so be yourself. Hey, Tom, what does this particular team mean to people in Cleveland? I mean, you've been talking a little bit about how this team has grown on the city, and yet here they are in October. You could see the other day how locked in the city was. What do you think this does mean, could mean to Cleveland? I hope a lot, um, Jason. I think, you know, we got so spoiled here in the 90s, and – um, for a lot of people, nothing will ever be as good as the 90s. And it was a special time, let's face it. Um, 
the Indians had not been relevant literally for 40 years. They played in the worst facility imaginable. And then they moved into a, an incredible ballpark. And then you had a ball club that had one superstar after the other. It seemed like the perfect storm. And then the Browns left town. And for three years, you weren't fighting for those corporate dollars. And the city was in a better spot economically. And so that's why you had five consecutive years of sellouts. That's never going to happen again. And, you know, I just, I hope people can move beyond that. I mean, I, it's a poor analogy, but it's amazing when you talk to Cincinnati fans, they talk about the big red machine with good reason, but it's like, I never hear them talk about 1990. <laughs> they won the world series in 1990, <laughs> but it's always about the big red machine. And, and, and I hope the city kind of falls back in love uh, with the baseball team. A lot of the people like to say what the club hasn't done. And look, they wanted to keep Cliff Lee. They wanted to keep CC Sabathia. They wanted to keep Francisco Lindor, but there, there aren't many clubs that can afford those guys. And those guys have the right to go out and get the best contract possible. And so you can't get mad about it and always blame ownership for that. And so um, I just, I hope people, again, look at this club and it kind of, to me, represents Cleveland. It's a blue collar team, you know, and the way they go about their business there, it's hardworking ball club. It should be a club you gravitate to, and it should be a club that's going to be around for a while. So I hope that's the case, Jason. And let's face it again, this is before our time, but I mean, Clevelanders hate the Yankees and that dates back to the fifties when Cleveland was so good and New York was so good. And if you look, there's like a eight to 10 year period there where either Cleveland won it or New York won it as far as the American league pennant. And there, the feelings of the people from that generation still exist today. And so I think any time for Cleveland and probably for any team, but anytime Cleveland plays the Yankees, it just takes it to another degree. I think if we come back 1-1, um, I think that place will be bonkers come Saturday night. <laughs> I actually hope people around the country embrace this the way people did when the Red Sox were trying to add in their drought and the Cubs were trying to end <laughs> their drought because it's 74 years. <laughs> and like, How much do you think about what it would be like if yeah. this team became the team that ended that. That to me would be incomprehensible because <laughs> yeah. of the teams we've had here. I mean, I know. that's why I say to people when they go, you know, you, you try to sell people. And that's why I think part of our fan base is you, you miss the journey. The, a baseball season's a journey. And if, if, if you, if you miss that and you're only, consumed with the final destination you miss out on what makes six incredible months of every day highs and lows and um so i i, I hope people kind of remember that because so many times in the past i've heard well they didn't win at all so they choked again i was like you had six months of relevant baseball you know how many cities are starting year eight of their five-year plan and they're still no closer to being relevant uh, 13 times in the playoffs since 1995 
that's a that's a pretty incredible run and and it you'd love for him to win it but for me it's it's the fact that we've been relevant that many times and been in the playoffs and had a, a summer of, of great memories well tom we've enjoyed this journey there's nothing more special <laughs> than getting a chance to talk baseball with you whether it's at a ballpark or here in beautiful starkville so listen man wish you all the best this october and hopefully november can't wait to have you back maybe from the parade how about that <laughs> yeah. well jason it, it's been an honor and love the show with you and doug and uh, you know i think the world of both of you guys your work and and what you've meant to our game we're lucky that we have you two in our game that it this is what makes our game so special it's it's the people well, you're too kind, man. You're, you're one you, of the special people, too, so thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks, guys. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation all through a barely-there poke-hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Here we go again, Doug. It is time for listener trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. And Doug, it's October. So we need to get on a roll like we did last October. But uh, the last two weeks, I don't know. Uh, we, we we got all the trivia quite got all the trivia answers right from like fifty years ago. <laughs> but we somehow forgot Bryce Harper one week, forgot Jose Bautista last week. Uh, let's do better this week. What do you say? Yeah, we were just warming up. Um, and, oh, sure. and if there's a such thing as like October zeroth, if there's like a date. I think we could 
claim that if we don't <laughs> be successful this October. The zero okay. of October. He, you know what they always say about October, though, right? It's a whole new season. It is. You hit the reset button. Everything yes. starts over, including trivia. Yes. So we'll start after a brutal 5 for 23 trivia performance in the season. Mm-hmm. We're going to start over and see what we can do when the lights are shining the brightest. They're not even shining at all, so I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Anyway, let's bring in this week's special trivia guest star. He did something uh, that we love. He emailed us his question at Starkville at theathletic.com. And what do you know? We actually read his email. It's David Lawrence. David, thanks for joining us here at Starkville. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you. I, I know you were here one time. You did the, you did this from your car or something. <laughs> but tell us a little something about yourself, where you're from, what team you root for, and how'd you decide you should do what so many have done before, torment us <laughs> with a great trivia question. Yes. Well, baseball trivia fan my whole life, probably from looking at baseball cards back in the day, all the little factoids and numbers on there. Uh not a happy baseball fan because I grew up in the St. Louis area. Sorry, man. So not real happy with the past uh, few days worth of action, but um, that got me looking at postseason records and whatnot, and that's what I have to bring you today. Okay, look forward to it. You know, I I say this every week. I think we should be able to get your question, Mm. which means we definitely won't. (laughs) So so this is your turn. Uh, David, let's hear your question. I feel like you've got a good chance because these are, this isn't like a Johnny LaMaster question. These, these are big boys <laughs> we're going to be talking about here. So I looked at the all-time top 10 postseason games played in a career list just to see where some of my favorite players might rank. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> if they're on there or not. But I looked at the list a certain way and you can kind of break it not in half, but in Seven in one part and three in one part. Seven of them have played for the Yankees at some point in their career. Three of them have never, ever been a New York Yankee. I'd love to ask you to give me the seven, but I know that's kind of outlawed nowadays. (laughs) Yeah, Doug has outlawed that. So can you give me the three players in the top ten all-time postseasons games played list who have never suited up for the New York Yankees? Okay, three non-Yankees, most career postseason games. We should get this. Well, you know, with, I've, I, with seven guesses, I, is that what that means? With seven guesses, three. <laughs> that is not seven. what he said. Oh, I thought no, that's we get three, ge- three guesses. Okay. Three. I know this is this is the angle you like to play, <laughs> but we don't get to play that, okay? And you know, Doug, I've researched so many notes like this. I'm just doing it the other night uh, on Yachty. Um so I, we should get this, uh, but we won't. But we should think it through yeah because it's pretty easy to think through it it Mm -hmm. pretty much has to be somebody from the wild card era because there's so many more games now Mm -hmm. so this isn't going to be duke snyder the boys of summer Mm -hmm. the guest house gang Mm -hmm. it almost has to be someone who played for one or maybe more than one of four teams Mm -hmm. the red sox the cardinals Mm -hmm. the braves Mm -hmm. and the Dodgers, especially the Dodgers of the last 10 years or so. Doesn't mm. that sound right, Doug? I like it because they've been kind of repeat offenders in the post postseason out there. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I like those teams. They've been pretty much regularly in the postseason. <laughs> okay, so let's let's work our way through this. For the Braves, Chipper comes to mind. Yeah, was there the whole wild card era? For the Cardinals, yeah. Uh, David just kind of dropped a little hint about this. Yachty comes to mind. He played 19 years, and the Cardinals were good, every one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red Sox, Big Poppy, mm-hmm. Dustin Pedroia, yeah. Dodgers, I was thinking maybe Justin Turner. Ooh, and then there's Manny Ramirez, Ooh. played for the Indians when Ooh. they were great, the yeah. Red Sox when they were great, yeah. and then the Dodgers. In fact, I'm really, I'm 99.999999% sure Manny's one of these. Mm-hmm. And I think Yachty's one. Uh, I just was researching some Yachty notes over the weekend. Mm-hmm. David just kind of hinted at Yachty. So I I think Manny and Yachty are two of them. Mm-hmm. Who's the third guy on the list? Uh, boy. Well, I mean, I was just along for the ride, just riding your coattails all through that. Um, <laughs> so I... Um, this was your time. I mean, you played man, against these teams. Yeah, that's that's well, that's my biggest blind spot, actually. Uh, well, I mean, can it be another Cardinal? I mean, who else played with Yachty? I mean, Pujols obviously yeah. was gone for a while, so yeah. I mean, missed ten years, but yeah. he's still way up there on a lot of these postseason lists. I just think he's not quite in the games played leader list. Well, where did Wild Card started when? Ninety-five. Okay, so so okay, yeah, that was, Chipper's really like Chipper's, Chipper's got, whole career. He played so many postseason yeah, baseball. It's got to be Chipper. John. I mean, does it? But uh, David David Ortiz played in so many. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, the Braves win every, every year. I mean, I stared at their back of their jersey my whole career. I mean, Chipper, they were there every mm-hmm. year, and he played forever. Yeah. I mean, Ortiz. And, see, that's the thing about Pedroia. In the Braves, like they went through a period there for a few years where mm-hmm. they were winning the. Division series every year, so they were playing multiple rounds. Right. But then, it, in the two thousands, they were getting knocked out in the division series every year. Um, yeah. The Red Sox, they kept winning. Yeah. I mean, they they went to all those World Series while Ortiz was there, and that's the thing about the Dodgers too. I can't get Justin Turner out of my head because they're always in the LCS yeah. or the World Series. That's a good one, but. I, I don't know. Like, well, we're not, you don't think we're missing somebody obvious? Well, is there... Um, all right, so Ortiz had all the Red Sox rings. He had all of them. No, three of the four. Okay, three of four. Uh, and Pedroia, same thing? Uh, Pedroia missed 04. Okay. Does anybody... And he missed 18. I don't know what we, what, whether he would count an 18. He was on the roster, but he was hurt. Yeah, is that... A, all right. Um, did anybody bridge that whole gap, Red Sox? I can't think of anybody. 2004 to 18? No. Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh-uh. That would have been magic, you know, Kevin Euclid or something. <laughs> Not um, even quite. That's a good name, but I... Yeah, uh, I think so. I, I, think, I, I, I think it's Manny, Yachty, and Chipper. I think that's the best way to go. I mean, even if we get it wrong, yeah. we won't look like dopes like we usually do. Yeah, I mean, Ricky Henry... <laughs> I mean, hey, I don't know. Dodgers, I'm just trying to think of who... Okay. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I'm just okay. Let's just go with the chalk here. And for wrong, I think it's a fine effort. <laughs> Justin Turner. All right, just I just once. So there's no Dodger that went through all that. You think Justin? Who's the any other Dodgers that went through all that? 
all the that the victory. Well, not all of it. I, Andre Ethier spanned a couple of these errors. Yeah. I was thinking about him. But but we know Chipper went through all of it. I mean, really. All of it. All right. I like it. I'll go with that. I like it. Chipper Jones. <laughs> yada. I mean, right. I, friend yeah. of friend of the pod too, Chipper Jones. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I'm sure we've mentioned the right answer and talked ourselves out of it, but. Oh, let's I mean, get it over with. There might be some sleeper in there who got on all those teams. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. David, is there any chance that it's Manny Ramirez, Yadier Molina, and Chipper Jones? Well, I've been on here twice, and I am now 0 for 2 because you guys are 2 for 2 and getting the correct answer. <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. Yadier and Chipper. Wow. We got one. That was, a good, that was like pretty magical there. Yeah, I, I mean, as bad as it feels like we've been at this, by my calculations, we've still gotten, I think, three of our last five right. Really should be five in a row. Mm-hmm. And in October, we've done really well. What What is it about October and trivia with us, Doug? Yeah, I mean, locked in, man. I mean, that's what dynasties do. Um, <laughs> and uh, you figure three oh. out of five. Three out of five, that means you won the NLDS or the ALDS. <laughs> so we advanced to the next round. <laughs> Hey, it's our show. We were going to advance either way. But, um, you, you know, I just had a feeling we were going to be just as good at postseason trivia as we were last year. And what do you know? But now here's some even better news. It's time for the highlight of this segment, which, as always, has nothing to do with us. <laughs> it's when the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, joins us to change the subject by playing another great play-by-play clip involving this week's answer. So we're going to have a Manny clip, a Yachty clip, or a Chipper clip. What could go wrong here? Tim, what do you got? We got a Manny clip. Uh, We're going to go back to 2007, the Division Series. That's why I went with this one, because we are getting ready for the Division Series. Uh, Game two, Red Sox versus the Angels. Left field! And the Red Sox are winners! Manny Ramirez with an absolute rocket into the Boston night. And the Red Sox lead the series two games to none. The at-bat the Red Sox have looked for all night to make them pay for walking Big Poppy. And on the fourth time, Ramirez delivers. If you remember the video, he swung the bat and immediately threw his hands up in the air and just stood there in classic Manny fashion and watched it go. Yeah, Manny in the good times in Boston, which you thought would last forever. And by the next postseason, he was a Dodger. (laughs) uh, David, that was a really, really good question. Uh, Right up our alley, thankfully. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for emailing us. Uh, Please come back again. Well, thanks for having me. I'll try to dig up some more off-season trivia to join you yeah. in a couple months. Yeah, Thank that you, sounds good, man. Appreciate Thank you. David. Take care. Thank you. Yeah, if you're listen, if you're listening out there and you'd like to do what David just did and be part of this show, we'll tell you how in just a few minutes. Strange but true. Uh, okay, Doug, now before we launch into this segment and do what we usually do here, uh, let me tell you just let me just tell you a little bit about my schedule last week in general on that Saturday in particular. As you know, uh, in the in that round, wild card round, my job was to write the daily weird and wild October column. So all the weird, wacky, historic stuff of the day gets jammed in there, and I just write it 
as I go along and then write it after the game. And the day, the days are long, whatever. I, I look, I watch baseball literally for 12 <laughs> hours. Uh, there's also a little writing involved. The big thing is I start every day wondering, what are we going to get today? So there I am, Saturday afternoon, got all my scorecards stretched out in front of me and my computer and my iPad and all these different screens. And now that game, that 15-inning game, starts busting out. So, like, imagine you're me. Wouldn't you be thinking, can't possibly have anything weirder or wilder or stranger but truer than that game, that 15-inning game happened today? That's what I thought. So, I mean, as soon as this game was clearly going to be one of those weird and wild, strange but true games, I just plowed into the usual massive research on all, all the rarities of 15-inning, one nothing games. Then I grabbed something to eat, started to write, and I'm writing, and I'm noticing something. That blowout, Blue Jays win in Toronto, that was in progress when I started writing, all of a sudden, it wasn't a blowout anymore. It wasn't even a Blue Jays win anymore. And so I'm trying to figure out, all right, which is the strangest but truest game of this day? Both was the answer. It, it, it just made for one long, crazy day of writing and researching and, to be honest, Doug, not very much sleeping at all. Okay, so when the when the research from stats came back at twelve oh one a.m. on the Toronto Seattle game, I thought this is probably not going to be that short a night. <laughs> so four o'clock in the morning is when I filed. Anyway, so there are many many ridiculous, strange but true facts and factoids from the Mariners comeback. Uh, you can just read all about them in the day two weird and wild column. You can still find that on our site at the Athletic, but. Since you were in Cleveland, you lived through the the one nothing game that we've been talking about through this whole show. Just want to go through some of my favorite strange but true tidbits from that game. You up for that? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> First, the basics. First time any postseason game had gone fourteen innings of nothing to nothingness. First time for any game in Cleveland postseason or regular season in 80 years. The last one ended in a tie because it got called because of darkness. <laughs> no lights yet. And then uh, Oscar Gonzalez, first walk-off homer by a Guardian, or, or an Indian, obviously, to end a nothing-nothing game in the 15th inning or later since Earl Averill in 1930. Five. So 87 years ago. Amazing. And then it happened again. 15th inning walk-off. Okay, uh, then you had this cool thing. I got very excited about this somewhere about the 13th inning. <laughs> A one nothing series-clinching game that goes extra innings. There's only been three of them ever. One was the game you were at. One was Indians over Orioles in 1997, and you know the other one, right, Doug? Jack Morris, right? Uh, Jack Morris was yep. the other one. So that's the list. What a cool list. <laughs> okay. Uh, then there was another thing. that The Guardians threw 247 pitches. They allowed no runs, and they still hadn't won the game yet. 
Okay, not until Oscar Gonzalez homered. So I looked into this. Uh, you can only go back 35 seasons because that's how many years we've been counting pitches. But in all that time, there's only been one game where a team threw that many pitches and finally won one to nothing. And the crazy thing is, I was there. And maybe you were there too, loyal Phillies fan that you were. This was May 17th. 1991, Phillies-Cubs, 16 innings. The Phillies threw 260 <laughs> pitches oh that gosh. night before they won one nothing. This was at the vet. I was there. Dickie Thon walk-off single made like the 17 people who were still there really happy. Okay. Well, that's great. You weren't there, though, right? You weren't there for well, that? There was one person left for each inning played. So that, that's... <laughs> I, I brought my son. He was so little. And I got to know what to do. He was like, he, he, he total, lost total interest in the game, of course. He was just kind of wandering around in a daze, like putting the seats up, putting the seats down. It was insane. Um, okay. Anyway, back to our show here. Um, the final thing was I counted up the totals for the game, and some of them are so crazy. Okay, so 104 hitters went to the plate. 16 different pitchers pitched. 432 pitches, and out of all those pitches, we only had 11 hits, but 62 swings and misses. Okay, so that meant there were almost as many fly balls caught by Miles Straw, who's the Guardian center fielder, as there were hits in the game. He caught nine fly balls in the game. And since I was listening to every word out of your mouth, I know that that was actually your very favorite part of the whole game, right? <laughs> of course, I, of course, you and I notice these wild things, right? Because <laughs> so, I, at one point, I looked at my box score. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> All I see... Are eights and K's. <laughs> yes! And, and in the it, fifth inning. That was every out. <laughs> and then every, and the only other thing was a walk, which I wrote, and my B's look kind of like eights. So I was like, there's <laughs> nothing but eights and K's here. So I, yeah. took, a, I took a picture. I'm, I'm going to pull it up just to remind myself here. So you posted I took, it. Yeah, I toasted it here. I took a picture. And the first thing, of course, I thought about, since, of course, I'm always looking for TVs, is like, 8K TV. That, that's a, it's a premonition. I have to buy an 8K TV. So, so, you know, some people play the lottery. I look at television sets in this encoded in here. So, I mean, that, it was like, this is wild. I was like, how long is this going to go? That's, of course, the next thing I thought. Like five innings in. So, I mean, it was just, that's how wild this game was. Oh. I know. So, 8K TV, the only obstacle to buying an 8K TV is first you would have to invent an 8K TV. So get right on that. Okay. They might be out there. I think they're out there. Yeah. Uh, 8K TV. That's Doug Glanville, Wit and Wisdom, at its finest. All right. That's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be bringing you podcast magic just like this all postseason long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety, absolutely free. Everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to read any of the sensational writing in The Athletic, and especially this time of year, we can tell you how. If you just go to theathletic.com slash 
baseball show and you're a new subscriber, you can subscribe for $1 a month for the next six months. $1. But also remember something else. You too can be part of this podcast. Every show, we pick a fun listener trivia question. Then that listener gets to join us right here and prove once again, there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. So how could you join the show? Well, you could do what our very special guest, David Lawrence, did this week. You could email us. We actually read those things at Starkville at theathletic.com. Or then you can go the trivia route where apparently it's possible to find Doug Glanville. Doug, can you confirm? You can find me. Absolutely. Well, where I, where I sent my 8K document and took a picture, that's where you go, at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E, on Twitter. Yep. Or you can also send those questions to me at Jason S-T. That's Jason with a Y, J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Please remember to hashtag the questions, hashtag Starkville QS. Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Tom Hamilton for visiting us. Thanks to David Lawrence for the great trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And Doug and I, we'll see you next week. On Starkville. I think we We're almost there. There we go. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.